0: Well, this morning we are going to be sharing in communion, which is a remembrance of the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was betrayed, tried, beaten, and then hung on a cross. In that Passover Seder, Jesus took wine, and he offered it to his disciples, and he said these words, Tim, if you can put it up, Luke, this cup is the new covenant. I think that sometimes we just run past things in the Bible. We make assumptions, and I think that can be a big mistake. The statement of Jesus is in the midst of a whole lot that is going on at that time. Jesus was talking about bread. He was talking about wine. He was washing feet. He was talking about being betrayed and then leaving them. And we get caught up in the whole enormity that we fail to focus on the parts Well, for a few minutes this morning, I want to talk about just one part of what Jesus shared, the covenant. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all that has occurred up to this moment. I thank you for our time of worship. Lord, I ask that it would be like incense that rose to your smiling face. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity that we have to gather together, to settle into your word, to understand your heart. And so, Father, I just ask that you would give me the words to speak. I ask, Father, that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. For, Father, nobody needs to hear a word from me. We need to hear from you this very morning. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would show up big time, that you would move, you would teach us, you would work what only you are able to accomplish in each one of our hearts and we just give you the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We don't talk a lot about covenants today, but we should. Unfortunately, we aren't going to have time to exhaust this discussion today. So I encourage you to go to your Bibles, to read, to study, and to digest the covenants because they are one of the most important themes in the Bible because they act as the skeletons upon which the entire story of redemption is built. They're like the backbone of the Bible, if you will. From Genesis on, God enters into one covenant relationship after another with various humans in order to rescue his world. These divine human relationships push that narrative forward until it reaches its ultimate conclusion in Jesus. Thus, to tell the story of God and, his, and him redeeming his people through Christ is to tell the story of God's covenantal relationships with his people. That's why we're going to explore key biblical covenants. But before we do... I want to back up and consider a question. What's a covenant? A covenant is a chosen relationship or a partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and then work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments, but they differ from a contract in that they're relational and they're personal. Think of a marriage. In love, a husband and a wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in a lifelong, faithful, and devoted family. They then work as partners to reach a common goal, such as raising children together. That's what a covenant is. Covenant relationships are very common in the Bible. There are personal covenants between two individuals like David and Jonathan and 1 Samuel. Political covenants between kings or nations such as King Solomon and King Haram and 1 Kings and so forth. But the covenants that we talk about today are the covenants that God makes. Covenants in the Bible are generally broken into two categories. Conditional and unconditional. Conditional Uh, covenants require a certain obligation to be met in order for God to uphold his end of the bargain. It's like an I'll do this if you do that kind of thing. On the other hand, an unconditional covenant requires no such obligation. God will uphold his promise no matter what. Like every good story, the covenant story begins long ago in a land far, far away, the Garden of Eden. It's there that God creates humans in his image to be in relationship with him and to act as partners to help him spread goodness throughout the world. The word covenant in Hebrew, berit, isn't explicitly used in Genesis 1 through 3, and yet the details of those relationships are present. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were to live as pri- priest kings on God's behalf replicating and ruling over the world and representing his righteousness to all. They would enjoy his blessing of eternal life with God as long as they didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To do so would bring the curse of death upon humanity. It sounds fairly easy, doesn't it? Not so much. Fortunately, we know humans didn't live up to our end of the deal. Adam and Eve, they chose to disbelieve God and trust their own instincts about right and wrong. They sinned against God, fracturing the human-divine relationship and plunging humanity into sin and death. This fall accounts for the brokenness and corruption that we experience in the world to this very day. And we'd be stuck in the wreckage of Genesis 3, were it not for divine intervention through the covenants, Thankfully, the rest of the Bible describes how God has set out to repair this broken partnership with humans. There's really no consensus on the number of divine covenants. There are, however, five explicit covenants that form the backbone of the Bible. Those are the ones that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and the nation of Israel, and with David before we get to the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus. Let's start with Noah. God enters a formal relationship with Noah and all the living creatures creatures promising that despite humanity's evil, he will never again destroy them. Rather, he will preserve the world as he works towards fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15, rescuing humanity and creation through the offspring of the woman. And he invites humans to partner with him in the filling and ruling of the world. After Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden, the narrative is pretty grim. In Genesis 4, Cain sides with a serpent, killing his brother in cold blood. A man named Lemach brags about his murderous and chauvinistic ways. In Genesis 5, we hear the repeated refrain of, he died eight times Revealing how death reigned over humanity. Then there's this rapid advancement of evil in the world as told in Genesis 6. Where is it that this evil leads us? Tim, can you put up Genesis 6, 5? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Human wickedness. And how did it play out in those times of Noah? I don't want to get deep into the weeds here with Nephilim and the like, but it is clear that their wickedness played out in sexual immorality and perversion. So much so that God limited the lifespan of man to 120 years, whereas before this time, it was eight or 900 years. So what does God do about this wickedness? As sin had developed the whole world, God sends a destroying flood upon the earth to purge it of wickedness, making way for a restored creation that will begin with Noah and his family. This is an unconditional covenant grounded in the promises of God to never again destroy the world until redemption is fully accomplished. I want to take a side note here. I think the Noahic covenants is actually a really good example of the dangers of biblical illiteracy. I'll tell you why what is the sign that God gave to the world to represent that he would never again destroy it? The rainbow. This is the month of June. This is Gay Pride Month, in case you missed it. What's the universal symbol that represents gay pride? Rainbow. Now, I can hardly think of a way to dishonor God more and throw his promises back in his face than to co-opt the rainbow as the symbol of pride and sexual immorality and perversion. The very same sexual immorality and perversion that had God say that he was sorry that he ever made us. And he caused a flood to destroy the immorality and the wickedness in order to start over. Now I have trouble enough with the taking of the rainbow by those who reject God and the righteousness of Christ, but the fact that there are churches that would put out the rainbow flag in support of gay pride without understanding the full implications of using the rainbow against God is unfathomable to me. I could go on, but we don't have time this morning. The covenant with Noah provided the circumstances in which redemption could come, but it wasn't redemptive in and of itself. Evil continued to reign over the world. In Genesis 9 through 11, it traces us through the downward spiral of mankind once again, peaking in the story of the Tower of Babel. There, humans tried to overthrow God's authority by building a new world center to exalt themselves above God. It was humanity's way of giving God the finger, revealing the nature of the human heart. God scatters the nations in judgment, and we're left to wonder how in the world will humanity be saved. But in a stunning act of grace, God selects a man, Abraham, and he calls him into a covenantal relationship. Tim, can you put up the picture? God enters a redemptive partnership with Abraham developed progressively through Genesis 12, 15, and 17. God promises Abraham a huge family that will inherit a promised piece of land in Canaan and bring universal blessing to all of humanity through that family. You can remember these promises as this, the offspring, the land, and the universal blessing. Abraham is called to leave his land and follow God wherever he leads, walking blamelessly before God and training his family to do what is right and just. And being called to keep circumcision in every generation is a sign of that obedience. This is both a conditional and unconditional covenant. God and man each have a part to play, but ultimately God's promises will be fulfilled. They will come to pass. And now we move to Moses and the nation of Israel. Tim, can you put up Moses' picture The book of Exodus opens with Abraham's offspring multiplying rapidly in Egypt. It's like a really big family now, and this threatens the new Pharaoh's ego. He forces God's people to become slave laborers in his building campaign. They cry out, and God hears them sending Moses to be his instrument of divine power to lead them out of Egypt towards the promised land. When they reach the foot of Mount Sinai, God shows up in a big way to revisit his promise that he had made to Abraham and enter that formal relationship, that covenant with Israel. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he promises to make them his own treasured possession, a holy and set-apart nation. He will personally dwell in their midst and bring them into that promised land. He will be their God, and Israel will be his people. Moreover, they will be a kingdom of priests that mediate his goodness and glory throughout all the land. It's an epic, redemptive story. Israel was to obey the terms embodied in all the laws that was given at Mount Sinai that were summarized in the Ten Commandments. God promised to bring blessing if they followed his commands, but curses if they disobey. This is also another place that the lack of biblical covenants and context can create bad theology. Most prosperity teaching is, in fact, taken out of those blessings that were offered to Israel. But we have to understand this was a conditional covenant of grace. Remember that conditional covenants require an if-then scenario. God promises a blessing that then, in this context, requires a big if. The if was, if you follow my commands. The commands were part and parcel of the temple system that required a sacrifice to be made for the penalty of sin, a sacrifice of an animal at the temple, on the altar, in the presence of the Holy of Holies. The New Testament tells us of two times that Jesus wept. Once at the the death of his friend Lazarus, And once when he looked over Jerusalem and wept, knowing that it would be destroyed, including Solomon's temple, the place where sacrifices were required to be made. The destruction of the temple occurred in 70 AD, fulfilling Jesus' words and establishing beyond any doubt that the Jews no longer had an ability to follow the sacrificial system. We cannot and we must not be tempted into believing that the blessings offered to Israel under this conditional covenant apply to us as individuals, Christians, or as a church. We do not and we cannot follow the commands highlighted in that sacrificial system. Therefore, we cannot claim the earthly blessings promised to Israel for her obedience. But next, we move on to David. God's people enter Canaan and eventually demand a king. So they can be like the other nations. God establishes David as king over Israel and promises to make his name great. He'll give David a royal kingdom in which the promise made to Abraham and Israel will be fulfilled through David's lineage. God will raise up a Davidic descendant who will build a house for the Lord and his throne and kingdom that will last forever. God's steadfast love will never depart from him. David becomes a successful leader, overcoming Israel's enemies and restoring the presence of God to the city. When there's national rest, he decides to build a house for God. But God had other plans. He will build an everlasting kingdom and throne for David, not the other way around. David and his descendants must remain faithful to God walk in covenantal faithfulness and lead Israel in obedience to the covenantal laws. However, there are conditional and unconditional elements to the covenant, despite David's failures, and we know they were great. God guaranteed a faithful Davidic king on the throne. That's Jesus. David dies in the second chapter of 1 Kings. The remainder of the Old Testament, especially through the prophets, God is setting the stage for the promise of the best covenant, the new covenant to come. Kim, can you put up Jesus' picture? The new covenant is the culmination of God's saving work in his people. He promises to make an everlasting covenant with his people in which he will write their laws, his laws on their heart, bring complete forgiveness of sin, put his spirit in them and empower them to love and obey his commands raise up a faithful Davidic king to rule over them, bring them back to the land to reunify them into one people of God and cause them to be the light unto the nations. The new covenant is introduced by the prophets in the context of total failure. The kings, the people, and even the religious leaders failed to keep God's commands. It turns out that God's covenantal people were nothing but covenant breakers, The curse of the covenant came upon them, and they were exiled to Babylon. But there the prophets give us hope. God would one day bring about a new covenant. The anticipation of this covenant pushes the story forward into the pages of the New Testament where we're introduced to Jesus, the one who will fulfill the prophetic promises and bring about blessing to all of his people Jesus connects his death to the new exodus, the new covenant themes that are highlighted in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Pentecost activates the new covenant themes that are found in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. The new covenant is the culmination of God's saving work in his people. Do you see that the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming a backbone of sorts to the redemptive storyline God preserved the world through Noah. He initiated redemption through Abraham, formed a special people through Israel, promised the shepherd king through David, and then fulfilled all of his covenantal promises through Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman become clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through King Jesus, This covenant is a new relationship to the old Mosaic covenant, but both are parts of the Abrahamic covenant. While Moses was the mediator of the old covenant between God and the nation of Israel, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant between God and believers through his finished work of redemption in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. While the old covenant required national obedience, the new covenant requires faith in Christ, the perfect, obedient son of Israel. Think about it. Jesus perfectly succeeded at every point that humans have failed. This makes him the guarantor and the mediator of the new and better covenant. In this coven- new covenant, we get total forgiveness of sins and cleansing from shame. We get new hearts of flesh and the indwelling spirit causing us to love God's laws and to walk in his ways. We can actually accomplish justice and righteousness and so be a light unto all nations. In the light of the biblical storyline, that's unbelievable, it's amazing. We can walk in freedom and in light rather than sin and darkness. We have bold access to God and to stand in the realm of grace. We trust that a new, renewed world is coming where peace and righteousness will reign forever under the rule of Christ Jesus. And all of that is possible because God is a promise and covenant-making and promise and covenant-keeping God.